1: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG Bad Boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Klobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Well, this is the time in the podcast that I'd normally say, hey, Bobo, how you doing? And he would say, her but he's not here right now, unfortunately. Um, he has uh, other obligations, and luckily, some of that obligation has to do with Sasquatch Prince out in the woods. He got a report on Facebook he's looking into at this point, and uh, we both agreed that footprints in the ground, even a possibility of footprints in the ground is a higher priority uh, than a podcast. And I, I hate to say that because the guest is on the line and he's hearing me say all this stuff. No, man, I agree with you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nothing personal, Pat. Um, so it's up to me. It's up to me and, and you, the listener out there, to uh, to enjoy this podcast episode. And it's a good one. This is one I've been looking forward to for a while. I think you're really going to enjoy it anyway. Um, joining me today is is Pat Spain. Pat Spain um, is the host of, uh, of a couple di- couple different television programs. Um, Legend Hunter and Beast Hunter are his two uh, most high-profile ones. Uh, Beast Hunter, of, of course, he, I think he went running around looking for cryptids all over the world and whatnot. But we're going to get into all that sort of stuff in a few minutes. Um, So everybody out there, welcome Pat Spain, TV show host and general nice guy and keynote speaker and all sorts of good stuff. So, Pat, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with just Cliff today. I'm so psyched to be here. Thank you very much, Cliff. This is awesome. Oh, it was awesome to have you on. Absolutely. Um, Now, of course, now I met you at Lauren Coleman's um, uh, International Cryptozoology Museum conference a few years ago. Yep. Um, How did did Lauren uh, get in contact with you? So uh, it's funny. So I live in New England
0: and Lauren's museum is obviously in New England up in Maine. And a good buddy of mine from growing up is uh, Andy Finkel oh really yeah yeah so we grew up together we were like really really close friends in third grade (laughs) (laughs) and we kind of lost touch for a little while and then reconnected and i found out that he had this interest in cryptids and he's like well i'm actually coming up around your area do you want to meet at the cryptozoology museum And i said i do i would love to (laughs) that would be great and this was i think the year after beast hunter So I was, I had been really sick and I was just starting to feel better. And I think this might've been the first time that I actually left the house in, uh, in
1: about a year. Now, when you say you're really sick, I, I don't know if people know this, but you're a cancer survivor.
0: I am. Yeah. I had stage three colon cancer that um, was diagnosed just when we finished filming um, uh, Le- Beast Hunter. It was like a month after after wrapping filming. We were still doing some editing. And uh, yeah, that was a wild ride.
1: <laughs> I bet. Yeah, we'll get into that in a little while. But let's talk about Andy for a minute. He's great.
0: Yeah. Oh, Andy's amazing. So I was feeling really, I was feeling better and I was excited to get out there. And I said, yeah, let's meet up in the museum. And I said, you know what? I've heard that Lauren's a really good guy. Why don't I reach out to him? You know, thinking maybe I've just done this cryptozoology show. Maybe he's heard of me. Maybe he hasn't. I have no idea. But I reached out to Lauren and I said, hey, I'm thinking about coming up to the, um, you know, my name's Pat Spain. I just did the show Beast Hunter on Nat Geo. And he wrote back and was like, oh, yeah, no, I love that show. This is great. When are you coming up? And he said that he would give um, Andrew and I, uh, you know, a full tour of the museum and kind of have lunch with us and stuff. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, that was my first connection with, uh, with Lauren. And then he and I stayed in touch after that. And um, I actually went to his wedding reception, which was super fun oh. uh-huh. <laughs> up at the museum. And I got to meet a bunch of other cryptozoologists because honestly, this world isn't, it's not that it was new to me at the time. Um, I've always, I guess, been a cryptozoologist, but I was more of an armchair cryptozoologist, I was really a field biologist is what I had done with it, with an interest in crypto and a family history of an interest in crypto. But um, I had never gone to the conferences or met any of the um, any of the people whose books I'd read, like, of course, I'd read Lauren's books, and i would read Hellwoman's books. And I've read, you know, all of these, um, you know, amazing crypto books, but I just, it seemed like a, a group that I didn't know how to crack that shell. And Lauren was kind of my first introduction into the world.
1: Well, that's, that's like entering a building on the top floor. 100%. Yeah, no, I feel very fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, you're a professional biologist. And it's always baffling to me. It's like, why aren't all biologists essentially cryptozoologists? Like, wouldn't they just love to describe a species in a journal, right? Same, same question. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's shocking to me. And I think that it's, people are afraid to look silly. I really think that's what it comes down to. And when you first hear about some cryptids, they sound outrageous. Like you talk about the Mappingwari, and you're like, all right, so this is supposedly this giant one-eyed creature with a mouth in its chest that can kill people with its scream. You know, I'm a, I'm a zoologist. I'm a, uh, you know, whatever, whatever type of biologist you are. I'm a primatologist. Um, there's nothing in the world that looks like that. So I immediately write it off. And you go, yeah. well. Why? Why would you immediately write it off when there are these persistent myths? Let's dig into it a little bit and uh, start to see. Like we know that known animals are given crazy, uh, you know, crazy details about them that aren't real. Like I, I'm a marine biologist but through school, and um, I can't tell you how many times I've been on the beach and seen parents look at a horseshoe crab and tell their kids not to go near it because it can sting them. Hmm. And it's like, no, no, they're they're harmless. Like I usually say, any animal with a mouth can bite you. But in order to even be bitten by a horseshoe crab, you have to stick your fingers in their chest and let them start walking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and at that point, you kind of deserve
0: it. Exactly. It's like getting attacked by a sloth. Like sure, some (laughs) sloths are aggressive, but if you get attacked by one, it's your fault. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, and there's also, you mentioned something about the, the uh, scream that will kill you from the Mapinguari, right? Yeah. Um, now, of course, uh, that, that is clothed in folklore and mythology right there. But, you know, if you dig a little bit deeper, there are precedents for things like that, maybe not that extreme, um, uh, uh, say for the use of infrasound, for example, with tigers. You know, tigers have infrasonic frequencies, and they can stun and paralyze their prey momentarily as they're jumping on them. Well, there's no reason to think that a, a, a large animal, whether whether it's a um, you know some sort of ground sloth or a Sasquatch-like creature living in Brazil, being able to do the same thing. So, if you just scratch the surface, that there's some reality behind all this stuff. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, look look at what a blue whale can do. Anyone who's been near a blue whale, you know, they they can stun
0: people. Humans will be knocked unconscious by you know some of the. Uh, yeah, some of the supersonic sounds that they can produce. So, I mean, this is not unheard of in nature. And if you even dig further than that and start to really talk to the people who live in the area, which you and I have had the opportunity to do. Yeah. Um, and you start to hear that it's it's not so much that the sound can kill you but more that it will disrupt your life so much to the point where you may as well be dead. Like it's really, it's connecting. My favorite part about doing Beast Hunter was looking at it from a cultural anthropology perspective. And that was what, um, that was really the thing that I was the most proud of with that series was to be able to look at it from the perspective of the individuals who live in the area and who experience this animal, you know, or the, the, the myths around these animals on a daily basis and to really hear it from them. And one of the most kind of aha moments I had on the entire series was um, in Sumatra. I was talking to a gentleman who had seen Oren Pindek. And I was skeptical and was questioning him because all of the descriptions that he was making sounded like a gibbon to me. Just sounded like a gibbon. And um, he caught on really quickly that I thought that this was a given. And he just started laughing. And I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like, I, I, I just want to, I really want to understand. And he goes, man, all you Westerners, like, you, you don't get it. You know, you, you don't believe that an animal is real until some white guy has given it a funny name.
1: Yeah, or killed it. Which yeah. is uh, stepping stone to it, you know. And, I, and it was like,
0: it stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, oh. Okay, yeah, you're you're right. Like, and he's like, you don't you don't live here. He goes, to, he said, the people who don't believe in orang pendek are the people who've never been to my forest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, touche. All right, <laughs> fair
1: point. Yeah, cultural biases are built in. We don't so you know it's it's like a fish wondering if it's wet. You know, doesn't notice the water it's swimming in, and that's the way we all are. We're we built in. We have these cultural uh, forces um, that surround us all the time, And, and essentially, culture is a way to normalize what people believe, right or wrong. Um, yeah, culture is not your friend. And that's been something I've been saying for years. Uh, one should rid themselves from culture, you know, to, to really get a good look at uh, existence as is instead of through these filters.
0: Yeah, and that's I love being able to go to the place and have those conversations myself rather than hearing it through a filter rather than hearing it from, you know, some, somebody who spent two weeks in the bush and, um, you know, did a did a write up on this. Uh, and, and I think that if scientists, all scientists took that approach, all field biologists really took that approach, then we, we'd be on the, on the trail of some really interesting animals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you've been to Sumatra looking for the orang pendek, Um, you mentioned the Mapping So you've been to Brazil. I think it's a safe assumption. Um, what other critters have you um, traversed the globe in search of? Oh man, so I was in Mongolia for, of
0: course, the Mongolian deathworm. The, the greatest name in all of cryptozoology.
1: <laughs> sounds badass, it really does. It yeah. does.
0: It really does. And all of the powers. I like to say that it sounds like a um, you know an 11 year old who's hyped up on sugar is describing this animal. He's like, oh, it can, it can shoot lasers out of its mouth, and then it can electrocute you, and it can explode, and it shoots hot blood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's awesome. Well, you know, cryptozoologists are basically 10 years old at the end of the day, right? Cause that's it's a that fair point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, adventure and, and excitement and discovery, you know, it's in our blood in a way. So Yeah. So, so I've, been, I've been to Mongolia.
0: I've been up in Canada looking for um, caddy. And I've done a little bit more uh, sea serpent stuff around here as well in, uh, in New England. We've, of course, got the Gloucester sea serpent. And um, then I've been out uh, to West Africa, kind of all through a few different countries in West Africa for Mokele Mbembe. Oh, geez. Do you know Adam Davies by any chance? Uh, so, you know, he and I have emailed... Um, and super positive, really, really positive experiences, but I've never met
1: him. Lovely man. I, I went to Sumatra with him and, you know, having been to Sumatra yourself, you know, that's, it's, it's, it really shows you how good we have it here in North America, you know, not just economically either. Um, but, uh, I mean. So so Sumatra is just really gnarly, but yet all the people are smiling. All the people are just lovely, lovely people down there and everybody's smiling, but it's really gnarly just because the the jungles, which are, as you know, highly romanticized, um, but for no good reason, because everything in it is trying to poke you, kill you, poison you. Harshest
0: environment I've ever been in,
1: hands down. Yeah, it's terrible terrible but adam davies you know who i went to sumatra with he says oh yeah this place is this place is going to get you if you let it you know but he said it's not as bad as west africa and he (laughs) just kept going on about how terrible the environment the people are lovely you know the politics and politicians you know how they are so forget the politics of west africa but the people are lovely but the environment has it in for you oh yeah Oh, yeah. So I didn't make it to Lake Telly. And I know
0: Lake Telly is kind of the, the epicenter of all, um, Akele and Bembe activity. Um, and that's because of the environment. So there were two reasons we didn't make it to, to Lake Telly. And, uh, one was at the time. So this is, you know, going back 10 years. There were all of these. Uh, you know they were they were rumors, but they were believable enough to, for the production company Health and Safety to not not give us the um, not give us the okay on this. Of the very few guides who were bringing people to Laeteli, had caught on that the people they were bringing had more resources than they had been led to believe. So there were a couple examples where they had brought people out and then um, refused to lead them back, or even worse, uh, taken hostages um, in order to demand a ransom and. Yeah, so we, again, they, they were rumors, but they were prescient enough that we, uh, we didn't take that, you know, that risk. So that was one reason. And the other reason is just the environment around Lake Telly is so hostile. I mean, miles of, Really, really dense, dangerous swamps, and as as you know, trekking through swamps is is not fun. <laughs> and carrying you know a couple hundred pounds of equipment, and uh, this is before drones, so carrying you know a uh, a crane and everything else that we bring for production is is not not easy.
1: So, that, is it worth it to get that shot? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I remember Adam saying, yeah, like, imagine going through waist deep. And of course, he's got the English accent, so I would love hearing him talk. He's going through waist deep muck and there's leeches and bugs and, and then flies are trying to lay eggs in your eyes, you know? And I was like, oh my God. No, Br- Brady Barr um, from Nat Geo,
0: who I had the opportunity to spend uh, a weekend with at a conference. Uh, awesome, awesome guy and just an amazing biologist. He's caught every crocodilian species, which is such a cool thing. But um, he went to Lake Telly. And he did make it there. And he still, um, at at the time that we met, he said he still had an unidentified parasite that was in his head. Oh, (laughs) jeez! And and we didn't even make it to Lake Telly. But in the Central African Republic, um, I got infected with loa loa worm. What is that? Essentially, they breed um, in your blood, and you get a whole bunch of little worms all inside you. And if you get infected with it, the first time you get infected with it, they all die, and um, your whole body just feels itchy for a couple days. Like your face feels itchy, the palms of your hands feels itchy, everything because it's the dead worms getting flushed out of your system. But if you get infected with it over and over and over again, that's the one where you can see an adult worm crawl across people's eyes while they're yeah. talking to you. Charming, absolutely charming.
1: So that was, okay. I mean, the whole
0: crew got infected with it. Um, it was just, that was a known thing, but they said, yeah, for the people that live there full time, it gets, uh, it gets pretty rough. And we were living with a, a, a tribe, a pygmy tribe um, called the Bayaka. And they were the guides uh, that we were working with here. And they were amazing. And there was a parasitologist who was also at the camp. And she was taking um, samples from everyone, everyone who was there, and just said that the parasite load was absolutely unheard of for healthy people. So that's,
1: you know, folks have adapted to to living there. But wow, yeah, it was harsh. Yeah, people adapt. Just isn't that fantastic? Just uh, absolutely amazing. It also really makes me appreciate how soft I am. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, I'm just such a wimp. Yeah, and, you know, even the most badass dude I can think of here in the United States is probably pretty wimpy when it comes down to, like, what, what are the things we're talking about here. So,
0: yeah, no, I think about that a lot as well. Like um, so, I, I had the opportunity and was so grateful to be able to do the bullet dance ceremony in Brazil, the Tucandera, which really pushes you to the extent of what you think you can put your body through. And, um, and it did, it's, uh, it's the only, on a, on a pain scale of one to 10, it's the only 10 I've ever experienced. <laughs> and, um, at the peak of where I, 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 ended up, um, as, as I mentioned before, I, I had uh stage three colon cancer and I ended up in the hospital for a couple months. And at one point, um, my intest uh, my intestines ruptured, I went septic and I had to be put in a medically induced coma for four days. And when I came out of that, I was in such intense pain that I was on, you know, a morphine IV for a a couple weeks and really, really bad stuff. But every four hours, the doctors would come in and take all your vitals and then they'd ask you to give your pain on a 1 to 10 scale. And once I was feeling better, you know, a couple months later and the doctors had gotten to know my personality, they were joking around with me and they said, you know, you're the only patient we've ever had with this degree of trauma where you never gave yourself a 10 on the pain scale, they said where you were like writhing in agony, sweating through the sheets, you were in so much pain, you could barely talk, and you would mumble, nine. You know, they said that's when they knew it was really bad. But they said, you're the only patient who's never had a 10. And I said, that's because I've experienced a 10.
1: <laughs> yeah, your scale has been calibrated appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, this wasn't it. This, this was bad. <laughs> well, that, that is such a good story. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's, it's just an, it's such an intense, amazing story. Why don't you why don't you tell that to our listeners? Because that was on a, a trip to investigate the Mapinguari, right? It was. It was, yeah.
0: So um, the whole... The whole concept behind Beast Hunter was to look at cryptids from a cultural perspective. So it was not to prove whether they are real or not, but to show why they are important. So, of course, we're looking for them, and we're looking to see the veracity of these legends, and I make an assessment at the end of it. But the, the real point of the show was, no matter what, whether this is real or not, why is it important? So, in order to get the real story behind the Mapinguari, um, we knew that I'd have to live with—I I was, you know, not have to. I was excited and honored to be able to live with a couple different groups of indigenous peoples, um, one of which was the satere Moët. And they are uh, notoriously untrusting of Westerners. Totally, totally, understandably, because they have not been treated well um, by Westerners. And as you, as you know, filming, you're not there for a year. I'm not able to kind of gain their confidence and gain their trust and tell them that I'm I'm not here to exploit you i'm not here to take advantage of you i'm here to learn from you Um, and that's easy to say but it's much harder to prove that to someone in a short amount of time so as we're in a production meeting in bristol england uh you know a year before filming i toss out this idea and i say well you know what if i really want to get their respect i should do the bullet dance ceremony and everyone at the table just froze and they went no (laughs) no you should not and I said, no, I really think I should. Like, this is something that it'll, it'll show respect. It'll be, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a way in to, to kind of prove to them that, that I am, that I'm real and that I am, you know, if not worthy of their respect, then at least respectful of them. Um, and, you know, to take part in this, in this ritual. And uh, we did a ton of research on it. We spoke with everyone from Justin Schmidt, who's you know the king of sting. He made he made the Schmidt Pain Index, and he's an
1: expert. on... Yeah, he's a sting guy, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's he's an expert on um, on bullet ants. And we met with a bunch of other bullet ant experts and talked to uh, um, Steve Backshall's production company because he was the first westerner to do the bullet ant ceremony, and I, the, uh, they believed I was going to be the second. And got it down to essentially they could guarantee they could not guarantee that I wouldn't die, but they could come pretty close to guaranteeing I wouldn't die. But the main concern was what mental effect it would have. During or long term? Long term.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: So I signed a whole bunch of waivers. I stated that it was my idea. I was not being forced into this. I was, you know, and everyone is still super hesitant. But we get to Brazil, and um, the bullet ant ceremony entails for for folks that aren't aware of it. It's called the Tucundera, and it entails going into the forest and collecting, um, you know, anywhere from fifty to two hundred bullet ants, which are the one of the largest ants in the world, the second largest, and they have the worst sting of any hymenoptera, which is you know bees, wasps, ants, um, you know, stinging insects. So it's bad um, and the pain builds for about four hours from the sting and then it lasts for another 19. So they call them the 24-hour ant because it's 24 hours of the most intense pain that your body can possibly go through and that's one sting. Uh, But what the bullet ant ceremony is is you collect you know 50 to 200 they knock them out using this narcotic solution and then they fill these gloves with them so that the stings are facing inward. When the ants wake up They're not happy because they've been woven into these gloves with their stingers facing in. And then anyone in the tribe who wants to be a hunter, which is the highest position in the tribe, has to wear these gloves and sing and dance for five minutes um, as you're getting stung just over and over and over and over again. And if you yell or cry out in any way, then it doesn't count and you have to do it again.
1: So you can't express yourself. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> so, so this is what I
1: had volunteered
0: to do, and this is you know this intense, awful, awful pain and agony. Um, and the production company at first was totally against it. Then, when I did get permission, we get there, and the, one of the things in the contract was that I had to agree to get a test sting to see if I would go into anaphylaxis.
1: Yeah, seems fair enough.
0: Um, So an hour before the ceremony, I got the testing, and I've been stung and bit by everything you can think of, man. I've been bitten by black bears and rattlesnakes and a rabid raccoon, and just the list goes on and on. This was like nothing I've ever experienced. So I get this testing, and I mean, I've worked in labs my whole life as well, and I've spilled strong acid on myself. This was like having hydrochloric acid injected under your skin. It was like nothing. And I, and I turned to the producer and I said, Hey, I, I'm sorry. I don't think I can do this. He went great. I'm glad. Like that's completely fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, gained your senses, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's
0: like, we got, we got one sting on camera. This is great. We, um, you know, we're going to film the ceremony with the
1: other initiates who are going to do this. Now, was that one sting? Was it a localized pain or did it spread?
0: No, that's the weird thing about it, is that it stays completely localized. It doesn't spread beyond your hands at all. So that's why a lot of people who experience this have the sensation that they want their hands to be cut off. And that's absolutely what I felt like. It was like, I just want this to stop, just cut off my hands, make them go away. So I get this one sting, and then um, I saw a couple members of the tribe who looked, you know, not disappointed, but, you know, kind of Yeah, no, we didn't think that you would do this. We didn't think that this, and I knew that I would never gain their respect. I would never gain their trust if I didn't do it. So at the last moment, I went, "No, I'm all in. (laughs) Let's go. Let's do this."
1: Yeah, take the plunge. Yeah, don't think about it. Just run in and do it.
0: Yep. And as soon as they put the gloves on me, I said, "This was a bad decision. (laughs) I should not have done this." But it worked. It worked. Um, after the twenty four hours, it was actually more like forty eight hours of uh you know, 24 hours of really intense pain, then I could kind of speak again.
1: Oh, you couldn't even speak for that day. The 24 hours, you're just...
0: Oh, I was, I was, I started hallucinating. I had massive hallucinations where I I thought that the ants were crawling all over me and all over the crew. I thought um, kids were eating them. I saw, I saw the river, you know, the Amazon, like boiling and blood pouring out of it. I mean, it was... Wow, just kind of lost your mind. I've never done hallucinogenic drugs in my life. (laughs) You don't need to now. This is what I can imagine a bad trip would be like oh. So it was brutal I mean, I um, I tried to bite our producer I headbutted our <laughs> cameraman I tackled our sound guy And just screamed
1: uncontrollably See, that's Tuesday on Finding Bigfoot like, Yeah, <laughs> not, not not because of hallucinations though
0: Just a normal brawl with the, <laughs> with the crew
1: <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond With Cliff and Bobo We'll be right back after these messages
0: Sonidos of our music.
1: Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories.
0: Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satellites, and podcasts
1: like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Well, what, what do you uh, what do you think about the Mapinguari as a biological entity?
0: I think so. I I believe that we heard it. I believe that there was one night that we were there in a forest, um, in a forest where it had been heard before. And what I found about the scream is that it's not that it kills you, but if you even hear this animal, you have to move your entire village, your family, everything oh, out of earshot. So you have to go away from wherever this animal is, which in my mind creates natural gamers. Or it creates a natural um, nature preserve. Oh, yeah, yeah. These are, uh, the, the um, Satorimoe e are a contacted tribe. That means that they do have limited contact with Westerners, but you have to go through a physical, you have to get special permission from the, from the Brazilian government, everything else just beyond their territory are uncontacted tribes. No contact whatsoever with the outside world. So no one from the West, no one from the outside world is going to this region. And those that are are only going where the tribes are. So if the tribes are moving out of this area, it creates a nature preserve. And that is where an animal like the Mappingwari could survive. So I believe, just as David Oren uh, does, Dr. Dr. Oren,
1: that it is a, a, a surviving population of ground sloth. I was down there for about two weeks, and we spoke to a variety of witnesses. And it was kind of split down the middle um, in their in their physical description of, of what they observed. And the name was uniformly Mappingwari, no matter what they what, no matter what they saw, they always put that word on it. But about half of them described a very large animal with long claws and you know, a, basically a giant ground sloth, just like uh, Dr. Oren, who we also met with, uh, um, advocates. But the other half, they described it as a monkey with no tail walking on two legs. Did you get both descriptions while you were down there as well, or uh, just
0: one? So the, the second description, we only got secondhand. So we didn't include it in the episode because it wasn't from any of the actual eyewitnesses that we uh, that we met with. But I have heard that, um, and that was a secondhand description that we got was the monkey with no tail walking on two legs. So in in my mind, much like a Rangpindek, there's quite possibly two different animals that are being described.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would think as well. It seems that the Sasquatch range or, you know, or, or some close relative thereof um, does in fact go down into South America. Uh, just that nobody's really bothered compiling the stories yet, you know, because that's, that's why we know about it from the Pacific Northwest is because all the early Bigfoot researchers were writing here. Um, but no one, no one has done that to South America yet, to my knowledge. So
0: No, no, I don't think with, uh, with a degree of kind of scientific accuracy that, that we've seen with the Pacific Northwest, I think a lot of it is due to the region, due to the difficulty of getting down there and to getting all of the necessary permits and the, you know, the visa and everything else. And the, it, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Without a production company, I would not have been able to do 90% of the research that I did. And um, without the backing of, you know, an amazing organization like Nat Geo, I wouldn't have had the, the door opened to a lot of the experiences that I was able to do. I mean, that that little, uh, you know, yellow rectangle gets you into places that, that it's, it's pretty remarkable.
1: But yeah, you know, that's something that Lauren Coleman um, has rightly pointed out again and again, is that the, the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, most cryptid research has been funded by reality television shows, essentially. Yeah, which is good and bad, you know, because I mean, it sounds like you had a very good experience on your show. And of course, on our show, we we uh, we always told the truth and we fought real hard and we won that battle. So, you know, you can trust what you see on finding Bigfoot as far as big stuff goes. Yeah. But like a lot of companies don't don't care. They're just making a story. And um, the the production companies don't have a a vested interest in cryptozoology or Bigfoot or even biology. They're just making a story. They don't care if it's true or not. So it's good and bad.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I, I've i steered away from those. I've gotten offers for that kind of stuff, and I've had the opportunity to do some of that. And um, it's, it doesn't interest me. It's not something that, I, that I'd like to do.
1: Yeah. So now uh, you mentioned the orang pendek. Uh, uh, do you think those are, uh, in fact, real animals as well? I think that they were. So I think the unfortunate story of Sumatra is a
0: story of extinctions. Um, Sumatra, you know, uh, the the forest is broken up um, there's not really too large of a contiguous forest any longer. That's not broken up by palm oil plantations and slash and burn agriculture and, um, you know, just the encroaching urbanization of, of the world. Um, I do think that Orangpindek was there very recently and if they are still there, which is entirely possible that they are either on one of the other islands, one of the other surrounding I- islands of Sumatra. I mean, there's something like 1,700 different islands that make up Indonesia, um, or there are some lone individuals um, that are still wandering around and aging. And uh, the reason that I think that is a lot of the a lot of the folks that we met with there. Um, the, some of the the indigenous peoples, as well as just some of the locals that live there, they say that their grandparents have always described Orang Pendek as being a wanderer, as an animal with no home range, with an almost indefinite home range, and they can tell you with a degree of accuracy that any would rival any biologist. You know, the home ranges of every known animal. This is how far orangutans go, this is how far um, gibbons go, this is how far tigers go, tapirs, um, Sumatran rhinos, all of that. And they say that Pendek had essentially a limitless range. It was a wanderer. They also say that their grandparents described seeing young ones, their parents did not, and those of them who have seen them had only seen adults, and very, very infrequently. It just leads me to think that you know an animal with a large home range, where the contiguous forest is broken up in so many ways, um, it would have a real tough time surviving in those conditions. Um, but I was able to meet with uh, Dr. Morwood, Mike Morwood, um, and interestingly, I, I, it's not not to say funny, but interestingly, um, he and I, when we met, both had the kind of later stages of cancer without realizing it he and I sat down to coffee. Neither of us were feeling well. And we both thought we picked up something in the, in the forest. But it turned out that we both had cancer. And he unfortunately passed away from it um, a few months later. But he, he's an amazing man. I mean, he's the discoverer. He, he's the, the person who found the hobbit, the um, Homo homophoresiensis. And he said that he had evidence That um, you know, he's like, it's not enough to be published in a journal. But I have evidence that Homo floresiensis was there into the
1: 1920s. No kidding. That's where's that information? Exactly.
0: We've spent (laughs) years looking for it. Um, So the production company that I work with, we've contacted family, we've contacted everyone, we've tried everything we can, but um, unfortunately, that's as much as
1: I know. Yeah, because you're probably aware of the um, the legends of the Ibu Gogo on Flores. Yeah, and and they're described, you know, this diminutive sort of small, hairy, people-like things. Um but I, I I wonder. Now I funded a project back in the 2012 to 2016 called the Orang Pendek project, where um I was working with the local people in Sumatra, and if they heard about a sighting of an Orang Pendek they would go out and scour the area for footprints. And um, and then that I got some really good stuff and I got a lot of hoaxed stuff because unbeknownst to me, um my contact over there decided to start paying witnesses and then everything went to hell after that, basically. You know, yeah, terrible, terrible decision. I never I told them to stop it immediately immediately and when I found out about it but that polluted the pool so even the good stuff I have now is essentially worthless because of it um it's interesting but it, it's it's not you know it's 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 polluted basically um but uh based on the footprint casts that we got um it doesn't seem to me that um, Homo floresiensis could be the orang pendek. I think we're talking about something entirely different. I'm I'm, I'm much more um, open to the idea that orang pendeks are some sort of uh, bipedal orangutan versus some sort of hominin um, like uh, the ibu gogo probably is because it's on the same island. Yeah. I'm with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're talking about two different animals, and I think ibu gogo is um, and Mike Mike thought this as well that ibu is linked to um, Homo floresiensis. And I think that orang Pendek is a different creature. And my my gut, based on everything I saw and everyone I spoke with, is that orang Pendek is uh, I would say a, a bipedal um, and nocturnal gibbon.
1: Hmm. Okay, a gibbon instead of an orang. Okay, yeah, that's very possible. Yeah are there Are there precedences for um, bipedal gibbons like there are bipedal orangutans in Southeast Asia? So not fully. Um, and this is where I, it gets really interesting
0: as a, as a, you know, an evolutionary biologist. So, um, the way that I pieced all this together and the way that I got it to make sense in my mind. So there is a precedence for gibbons walking upright, but they they don't do it in a very graceful way. They're always looking for the next thing to grab. They're always looking for the next branch to grab and to immediately go up into the trees, but they do it. So there is precedence for them doing this. They also are the only great ape that is active at night. Not to say that they're nocturnal, but they are active at night. So it's not a far leap to see a group of them branch off and become more active at night than the others and eventually become a separate species. Now, when you're talking about night in the Sumatran forest, you're talking about what's the apex predator in the area. It's the Sumatran tiger. The tigers in Sumatra are known as polite tigers. And when I asked people what that meant, it says they usually want to see people, but not attack them. That is polite. It is polite, yeah. But I thought that's so interesting. So what is it about people that makes us not prey? And that brought me, what makes people stand out from any other animal? And it's the way that we walk upright. That separates us from all other animals. So if you're talking about a gibbon that's active at night, that's you know getting the benefits of being active at night, all the various flowering plants and fruiting plants, and the you know being able to exploit a whole different niche in the rainforest, um, and then you start talking about well, it's got to deal with tigers. What if by walking upright, it's also getting that you know that millisecond of pause from a tiger to go? Maybe I don't want to attack this. I don't know what this is. It doesn't look like food anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, so many of the witnesses that we interviewed when we were down there um, and other ones that I've, I've read about have the hands up in the air as the thing runs away, just like what you're describing with gibbons and oranges and whatnot. Um, how, that's an interesting perspective on that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of mis... I, th- I think, think there's a lot of misidentification. I think there are a lot of people who don't see gibbons regularly, and who see this, this animal run away with its arms up in the air and think, oh, that's a ring pendek. But in reality, they are seeing a gibbon. But there's enough sightings from people who are very, very familiar with gibbons and orangs, um, where they do know that this is a distinct animal. And it, and it walks and it behaves in a very distinct way. And it even has a different call than what we would describe as a gibbon call, different coloration, all of that Um that I think there's enough to say that I, I believe there is, there is or recently was a different species.
1: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. You, you talked about uh, West Africa, Mikaela Mbembe. Um, what do you think's going on with that thing? I know you didn't get to the lake, but certainly you spoke to enough people to get some sort of model or picture in your head.
0: Yeah, so Michele and Mbembe um, turned out to be one of my favorite stories. <laughs> so uh, to start, I don't believe that there is a living dinosaur species in West Africa. That is a bridge too far for me. Um, but I think that the story is necessary for the area. And the, the reason I feel that is um, the, the different peoples that I was living with over there, the the Baka and the Baiaka, collectively called the Aka people. Um, It's the the pygmy tribes that are most frequently associated with Mokele and Bembe sightings. And it's a harsh environment. It's a very, very, very harsh environment. And it's really strength and bravery are rewarded amongst all else. Um, And people go missing, people disappear. Most of the fishermen who are on the riverways there cannot swim. And when I asked why, um, it was a, a very, you know, you westerner kind of moment. And I felt ashamed having not thought of this, but the rivers are a dangerous place. No one's going in there for fun. You're not playing and splashing and learning to swim as a child the way that we are in the States. It was a total, you know, cultural moment. So most of the fishermen can't swim. And if a canoe tips over, that fisherman's just unfortunately never going to be seen again. Um, but Culturally, that's a hard pill to swallow, um, and having the existence of Mokelium Bembe gives people an out that they may not have had otherwise. And what I mean by that is, if um, when I ask people, you know, oh, what do you do if you see a crocodile? And they say, oh, I have my machete on me. It's fine. I don't worry about crocodiles. And I said, OK, well, what do you do if you see, you know, uh, a giant, giant monitor lizard? Oh, you know, I've got I've got my machete. I've got my arrows. I'm all set. I don't worry about those. What do you do if you see McKellie and Bembe? We get the hell out of there. <laughs> like That's that's the thing that you don't
1: mess with. Yeah, like the unstoppable force that could get anyone no matter how badass they are.
0: Exactly. So if you say I'm not going to go down to the river at night because there are crocodiles, people will laugh at you. But if you say I'm not going to go down to the river at night because there's mukheli and bembe, everyone goes, "Oh yeah, smart man. Good job. Yeah, don't do that." So it's almost like a it's almost like a culturally acceptable out to make a smart decision. That you don't have to make an excuse for and when someone's canoe when someone doesn't come back from a fishing expedition it's you know, oh you know, we, we haven't seen, um, you know, we haven't seen James in three days, but he was the best fisherman we've ever seen. He could navigate those waters better than anyone else. And yes, the rivers are flowing much stronger now than they were before due to climate change. And the rocks are are harder to navigate. We've seen people hit the rocks, but there's no way that happened to James. It must have been Mokeli and Bembe.
1: Now, when you were over in Africa, did you hear any stories about unknown hominoids of any sorts? Because so few stories leak out of Africa, um, much like South America, like we were talking about earlier. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So we did. We did. And it was interesting because I kept on getting sidetracked and wanting to chase down all of these other stories. Um, But it was was very similar to what we hear from... um, you know, from from the U.S., it was well. There are these, you know, large, hairy. Uh, it's not a gorilla. It's not a chimp. It's something else. And no one takes this seriously. But you know, we we've seen them. And this was not in the swampy regions, but more in the forest. And you know, we it wasn't a story that we were there to tell. So I didn't really get to follow up on any of them. But we did hear a few people talk about them. Um, and they were in regions that have mountain gorilla, or that have forest gorillas, rather. So it was hard to know whether it was a mistaken identity thing or not. We didn't get to dig into it, but it would be very interesting.
1: Uh, have you have you read, uh, I always bring it up with guests who have been to um, Africa and look for these things. Have you read um, that book by Gareth Patterson, uh, Beyond the Secret Elephants? No, I haven't. Gare, uh, Gareth Patterson, if you don't know who he is, he was like the sidekick of the guy in the, you know, the lion dude in the 70s movie, Born Free. yes. Yeah, he was like the sidekick. He was like his apprentice at the time. But now he's gone on to become this world-renowned naturalist. Um, And uh, he took it upon himself to study these elephants in South Africa because uh, um, he he had heard that they had gone extinct, at least almost extinct, down to one matriarch. And so he started looking into this area, South Africa, the southernmost um, population of elephants in the world, and discovered that, nope, rangers are wrong, biologists are wrong. There's like 20 of these things. There's like more than two dozen of these things roaming around. It's not just, just one Left in this troop anymore, or in this in this in this herd, um, but while he's doing his uh, his elephant research, he started seeing these Sasquatch-like animals. You know, six seven feet tall, and taking stories from the locals and all that stuff. I think he's had several sightings at this point. We had him on as a guest in the podcast, but you might be very interested in that book. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll absolutely check that out. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link. Please do. Yeah. I'm assuming you've been to Loch Ness. Is that a safe assumption? I have. Yeah, I actually filmed an unaired pilot of a of a series
0: um, where we were we assembled a team of all different, you know, from all different backgrounds, and we were going to do a whole series on Loch Ness. But we just did the first episode, which was really fun, and I got some really good scotch out of it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it turns out that, you know, you know, when we went there, they say, um, you know, they, they sometimes give you a packet to kind of acclimate you to think what's going on and whatnot. In the packet, it says, um, don't forget, in Scotland, they call Scotch whiskey. <laughs> right. Well, duh. yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yep. Well, what do you think is going on with the Loch Ness thing?
0: Yeah, I think, I think, again, I think that they're really fun and interesting stories. But man, I... I I didn't see anything or hear anything that was going to convince me otherwise that there's that there's something really there. Um, The whole premise that I had of going into that is I could believe it if there are these big tunnels that open up into the ocean. And unfortunately, there are not. There's a couple channels, there's a couple canals, um, but there's nothing where a large animal could pass through undetected to get to the open ocean. Because otherwise, you're talking about a body of water where, I mean... There, there are salmon. There are some some large fish, but um, seals make their way up too, right? Very, very infrequently, and they're usually seen coming and going as well. So it's, um, I think it's mistaken identity.
1: Yeah, see, because I, I think that it's real, and, and let me let me explain why. And um, and of course, I when I was there, I got to go on the boat and you know do all that stuff, but I didn't see anything either. But the reason I think it's real is is um, the. The, the, the stories that come out worldwide in that latitude of river monsters, river snake serpents, and stuff, you know, from the West Coast of North America. You know, the first time I ran across witnesses and stories of these things, I was on a Bigfoot trip on the Klamath River in 2008, filming for a uh, Monster Quest. Um, I was talking to people about Sasquatches and I said, I haven't seen one of those. I've heard them, but I, you know, I saw one of those river serpents and go, what? And like in a four or five day period, I picked up like six stories, four or five, six stories about these things and they matched and stuff. Then I started hearing about other stories in other parts of the world. And all the descriptions to me um, sound like a, uh, Big old eel, like some sort of giant, because they're clearly not dinosaurs, you know, because they'd be coming up for air all the time. But So they've got to be some sort of fish, and an eel matches the description pretty well, some sort of giant 15-foot-long eel or something like that, or 20-foot-long eel. Um, and, and it always has to do with the salmon runs. Like on the Klamath River, the native people there were telling me, um, it's like, yeah, we we haven't seen one of those for a while, but the salmon runs have been terrible. They're kind of going extinct. And then a few years after that, in 2011 or 12, they had a really good salmon run and there was a sighting, right? So then I started thinking about, okay, Loch Ness. Yeah, maybe that's what we're going going with, because there is a salmon run and there is a ri- the Inverness River goes right up into it. And um, and I don't have any being being in the Pacific Northwest where I am, I have no problem with a large, you know, 15, 20, 30 foot-long slithery, snaky thing um making its way through Inverness at night because steelhead and salmon make their way up through, you know, six inches of water at night to avoid predators. Um, so, it's not that far of a stretch. But the the clincher, that, that, that's always been my hypothesis, because worldwide at that latitude, there are stories of th- similar things. So, I think it's an ocean going, you know, temperate water sort of critter that comes up, follows a salmon run. But when uh, they did that eDNA study a few years back, what, yeah, what they found was an inordinate uh, amount of eel DNA that seemed to be a little suspicious. So, yeah. And, and so this, this is one of the problems
0: with talking about cryptids. Um, when I say I don't think it's real, what I mean is what the general population at large would recognize as Loch Ness, which is
1: like a plesiosaur. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really not a plesiosaur. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so so
0: that's what I mean. And that's one of the things is that we can talk about the Yeti in a bit, but, um, but that's my favorite example of that. But yes, uh, a conger eel or something, or some other, or, or some unknown type of eel following a salmon run and making its way into Loch Ness. You could convince me of that all day. You don't even have to convince me of that. That I would buy absolutely. But what I meant is, I don't think that there's a plesiosaur or a
1: anything that would meet the general public's description of Loch Ness. Okay, I'm totally with you on that one. But I, I want to keep the door open a little bit for that eel hypothesis. You absolutely,
0: know? yeah. And that's that's one of my favorite things about this is um, so if. The Yeti, I, um, I absolutely believe that there is veracity to these accounts, but I think that it's nearly impossible for the general public to prove or to accept most cryptids when there's a biological explanation. And what I mean by that is the moppingwari, unless you find an animal that has a mouth in its chest and one eye and kills people with the screams, then they say, no, you didn't find the mopping It's really cool that you found a giant ground sloth, but that's not the mopping If we found an extinct species of polar bear that followed all of the patterns and was in an area that it's never known to have been in, yada, 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 people wouldn't say, oh, that." people would say, that's really cool, but that's not the yeti. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's the difficulty. Like you were just saying, if we found a new species of eel, In Loch Ness, that's amazing and it's, you know, biologically interesting. Biologists would love that. There are some cryptozoologists that would love that, but there's a lot of people that would go, yeah, that's cool, but that's not the Loch Ness monster.
1: Yeah. It's our own idea superimposed over the reality. Um, And and, and frankly, our own ideas of any sort of reality rarely match up to what reality is. (laughs) is, Even of known uh, animals. Yeah. Yeah. Even of known animals. Exactly. Yeah, but that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, let, let's, let's kind of pull the strings apart in that knot a little bit to try to get to the root of it all. Um, so, now uh, you brought up the Yeti, of course, and um, uh, people who are, are well versed in the Yeti literature um, know that there's three different kinds of Yetis described uh, the big, Bigfoot kind of Yeti, you know, and then uh, there's a smaller ape like species that there's been footprints, um, really interesting footprints uh, retrieved from. And, of course, the bear. And um, uh, that Brian Sykes tested, you know, the a bear hair and proved that the bear hair had bear DNA in it, which is ridiculous, I think. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's the production company that I that I that's Icon Films that found that sample. This was a hair sample that was found in a cave. Yeah, no it, it's it's unreal. It's really really cool. Yeah.
1: Oh, fantastic. Um, so, so so, the yeti thing, do you think that most yeti stories are are uh, explained by the bear species that is present in the same area? Or do you think that there's some sort of hominoid thing going on? I, I couldn't rule it out because I think that the stories,
0: like the, the biology of the stories follows such a great pattern. Like, you know, talking about this creature that is sighted at different elevations at different times of year, following, you know, moss, uh, following the, the appearance of different mosses where it would be getting salt content from and going back down into the forest and potentially um, having some kind of color change like a, uh, like a snowshoe hare or something like that exhibits. Um, it's so interesting and it's so consistent with other known animals that um, I would have a hard time saying that all of them, all of the sightings are this bear, but I do think that the majority are. I see.
1: Yeah. Well, certainly there's a lot of inaccessible area out there that anything could be living. Holy smokes. Yeah. The Himalayas are another place that's no joke, but for an entirely different reason. Now, over in that part of uh, Asia, you said you've been to Mongolia for looking for the Mongolian deathworm. Now, I got to ask, what in the world is going on with that?
0: So, um, I, it, it's one that we didn't originally include in the pitch for the series because. It's such a hard sell <laughs> to, to say that this is out there, but after a lot of back and forth and a lot of um, you know times where I had to admit that I was showing the bias that I tend to accuse other biologists of having by immediately writing it off, um, we start to look at all of the traits that it's supposed to have, and you do find all of them in nature, just not all combined in one creature. Um, and it's such—it's a region of the world that's so underexplored and so um, underfilmed and shown that it, I, I finally did get on board with this is going to be a great story. I did not expect to find a Mongolian death worm, but I expected to find a really amazing legend, and we did. So what I think is behind it is that what I found is the nomads in Mongolia live you know, an a interesting and difficult life. And they have an immense, it's a Buddhist country, they have an immense respect for all life. And part of that respect is you don't mess with something that you don't have to. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of legends and stories about horses as being the, the kind of epitome of good within the desert. And the horse takes on all of the traits of the Gobi as all of the positive aspects of the gobi and the mongolian deathworm is kind of the foil to that to all of the harshness and all of the you know the difficulties and all of the things that you face for survival every day are kind of embodied in the mongolian deathworm um mm-hmm. i don't think that it's a boogeyman i don't think it's something where you know you warn kids not to go out into the desert because they might find a mongolian deathworm the way that i heard it kind of the, the stories told around the campfire and told to other kids they talk about it just like it's any other animal and just like any other animal, if you're not going to eat it, you don't mess with it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know you don't mess with this because it's dangerous. But the, the nomads that we were living with had these incredibly detailed stories about the dangers of every animal we saw. So when we weren't filming, I would just go out and catch stuff because that's what I do. And I caught this little um, grass snake. You know, and it was was really, really fast. It struck over and over and over again, but the thing's got a tiny mouth. I didn't get, you know, it it hit me with its face a couple dozen times, but I I think it broke the skin once. But, I mean, no danger here at all. It's not venomous. It's got no harm. And I picked it up, and these huge, hulking, football player-looking dudes lost their minds. (laughs) Why would you do that? Put that down. What's wrong with you? And I said, well, well, what is it? Tell me about it. And they said, that snake Will shoot through a camel and impale you while you're riding on your camel through the desert.
1: Whoa. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no. Really? No, it
0: won't. <laughs> but tell me more. <laughs> so, um, and they're saying, you know, it's because of how fast it strikes. And when you start to put it together and you start to see, um, you know, nobody saw this happen, but they saw, you know, bodies. They've, they've seen bodies and the bodies have a hole in it. And these snakes are around. Well, these snakes eat insects and small animals, which would be around a corpse, if you find a corpse. You know, there's insects and small animals. Those prey items might attract the snake. So you come upon a corpse in the desert. You see the snake around there. You see holes in the body from scavengers and from other things. You put those two together and say, nope, don't go near those snakes. They can shoot through and kill you. (laughs) I'll be careful. Exactly, yeah. So so better be safe than sorry. So they did that. There was another one, um, a toad-faced agama, which is just a cute little lizard. Looks kind of like a horned lizard.
1: Great name, though.
0: Yeah, great Great name, right? Toad-faced agama. Yeah, they're awesome. So I caught one of those, and it was the same kind of reaction. And they're like, no, 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 those eat babies. I'm like, well, they eat baby crickets. <laughs> but <laughs> So they had all of these legends around known animals. And really what it came down to is just... You know, they didn't they, they never wanted us to kill any animal. we weren't on an expedition that d- would do that anyway. but it was like no respect all life, leave it where it is, don't go near it, don't touch it. I mean we were pulling camel ticks off of ourselves and they were like, oh, I know they're really gross and annoying, but please just put them back out in the desert where they belong. like they shouldn't be on you but it's not their fault. They're just
1: doing what ticks do. Well, that's kind of sweet.
0: Yeah. So, and, and that's how they treat the Mongolian deathworm too. Like when you read all of the legends of the Mongolian deathworm, all of the people who got killed by it messed with it. <laughs> they poked it with a stick. They dumped gasoline over it. They stomped on it. They, you know, no one was just minding their own business, and a Mongolian deathworm came
1: over and attacked them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're not prey items for such things, I imagine. Right. So I don't I don't think that it's a. I think that there there's every possibility that there's an undiscovered
0: species there of some kind of you know sand boa um, maybe even some kind of spitting cobra you know something uh, that's in like in in just over the border in China there there are a couple spitting snakes uh, it's not out of the question to think that they could have made their way to there there could be a burrowing animal like a, you know an amphispina or a sandfish or something that you could be mistaken and then the all of the traits of it have just been, Extrapolated over the years, based on you know the overarching view of "don't mess with it if you don't
1: have to." What ha- what, what would you like to do or go look for that you have not had a chance to do so yet? Uh, I'd love to get back to Sumatra, man. I
0: really, really want to get back to Sumatra and Brazil for um, for the the Mopengwari and for the um, orang Pendek because I, I just I feel like I left. I left those unfinished. We didn't have the time or the uh, the resources to really dig in the way that I would love to. Um, so I'd love to get back there. I'd love to do more more Sasquatch research. To be honest with you, it's it's in our country um, and Canada, of course, but it's um, it's one of the more I mean, accessible isn't the right words, but it's it's one of the more. Um, no, I think accessible is a good word for that. Yeah. Actually,
1: yeah. it's it's right there.
0: It's right there, right? And I've I've never had the chance. I would I would really really love to take some time and go up and uh, and do some real walks through the woods myself and some hikes and some, you know, go to the, the heavily sighted populations. And while I was talking to the, in British Columbia, to the, um, the first nations up there, they had some really, really great stories. I'd love to get up there. I mean, we were looking for caddy, but, um, I got to talk to them about Bigfoot as well and their thoughts behind it. And I would love to dig into that.
1: I know you're a, you're, a, you're a biologist, you're a professional biologist, that's probably your, um, your nine to five sort of regular living, but you're also a, a keynote speaker to a variety of events, not only about your adventures, but also about like the surviving cancer and, and just a variety of, of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit about that, or do you have any gigs coming up? And I, I know it's COVID right now, there aren't a lot of gigs to be had, but are, is there anything that you'd like to, our listeners to be aware of? Sure. Yeah. Um. So I I have been
0: hunkered down due to COVID, and um, I know every animal and all the life cycles of all of the animals that live in my backyard at this point, which is awesome. <laughs> my daughter's six, and she and I have gotten out there every day, even in the winter, finding everything we can get our hands on. But um, as far as the, the outside gigs go, um, I filmed a few pilots here and there. Um, nothing that's taken off. I filmed uh, a couple different episodes of things um, here and there. But I've, I've also, yeah, I've done a few uh, few talks. And I'm always always up for more kind of remote uh, speeches. And once the world reopens, more in-person talks. And uh, my website is patspain.com. So people can contact me there for those speaking opportunities. And I took the time over um, COVID to find analyze uh, six different books so i've just finished six books that have been accepted for publication and um, i've got the final drafts in right now i've got the covers all sorted an amazing artist named uh, dia moeller who is a tattoo artist who did my bullet ant tattoo um, drew the covers and they're they're gorgeous and those should be coming out uh, later this year Six books? Six books, yeah. yeah. I didn't even write one. I You're writing six. So it started as one book, and um, I wrote about 700 pages, and I knew that that was too much. <laughs> so so when i found a publisher i figured that they would tell me just which parts to cut out and what was really rewarding for me was they liked it all but they agreed that it was too much so they ended up breaking it up into six books and asking me to bulk up each one of the six.
1: Oh, so, you already been done writing after 700 pages <laughs> nope,
0: nope. so i so i did that and uh, that was a wild experience but really fun so i'm really proud of those and uh, the name of the series is on the hunt and uh Each one. So there's five that are about a different cryptid, um, but really they're more of just kind of dark, funny travel stories. It's, um, it's you know, all the crazy things that happen when you're on the road and when you're experiencing these different, you know, places. And uh, and then there's one chapter about the cryptid in each one of those five. And then the sixth one is sort of a bridge book. And it's how, how I started doing this, what my background is, um, and my cancer story. So how that kind of derailed everything and how I got back on track. And I tell it all through the lens of this trip that I took on my 31st birth my 32nd birthday of going up to manitoba canada to lay down in the, the pit of garter snakes which is the largest concentration of snakes on earth there's a little over two hundred thousand snakes in this one small area that's like the size of my office and i got special permission from the government to go up and lay down in this pit of snakes and film an episode of my web show up there and that kind of brought me back from the from the depths
1: Well, Pat, it has been a great conversation. You're such an interesting person. Um, I'm so pleased that we crossed paths a couple of years ago and we can, we've stayed in touch all this time. Um, If there's ever anything I can do for you, if you're ever out on the West coast, I'd love to have you drop by my Bigfoot museum. I'll take you out to the woods. Maybe we can hear one of these things. Um, Yeah. Anything I can do for you at any time, just go ahead and reach out. I'm happy to help. Okay.
0: Awesome. And same here. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you're back in Boston, when the world reopens, let me know. I'll show you all around and maybe we can do something up in the woods around here.
1: <laughs> That'd be great. I'm so sorry Bobo wasn't here today for you. you have to meet him another time. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was, a, this was great. Okay, Pat, take it easy. Well, there you go, listeners. Um, Pat Spain. All around nice guy. You can see why I love this guy. You know, I met him at Lauren's conference a few years ago. We've been friends ever since. Um, haven't had much FaceTime with him, of course, but we do speak every once in a while. Uh, and what a great resource! This guy's an adventurer, a legitimate biologist, um, and interested in a lot of the weird stuff I am too. So, what a great resource to have. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, If you did enjoy the conversation, tell everybody in the world, you know, about uh, the podcast, Um, you know, phone, phone, the neighbors, wake the kids, scream it out, you know, on the lawn, yell at some kids, that sort of stuff. Hey, if you're listening to Cliff and Bobo's podcast, you should. Um, and then do what you need to do to spread the word. We really, really appreciate it. And other than that, this is when Bobo would say, keep it squatchy.